Hello and welcome to Today in Space. I'm your host, Alex Giorfanos. And this week on Today in Space, we're going to talk about some commercial crew progress. There's some great stuff to talk about there between SpaceX and Boeing and by proxy NASA. And we've also got some stuff to talk about in interstellar space with Voyager 2. So let's let's just get right into it. This past week, SpaceX and Boeing both had tests of their commercial crew spacecraft. So Crew Dragon for SpaceX, and the CST-100 Starliner for Boeing. And we'll start with SpaceX first. They had their first successful multi-parachute test for the Crew Dragon. SpaceX is using a new parachute design. It's the Mark III design. And that Mark III design is different in that they've done a lot of different updates on that, and there's plenty of other videos out there that you can learn about what the specifics are of what's new about it. But this Mark III parachute design is is supposed to be safer, marginally safer, and much better. And this is the 13th test of the Mark III parachute, but it's the first test that SpaceX has done with the multi-parachute test. So there's four of these parachutes, and this is the first time that they've tested that. They need to do 10 times of successful testing in a row to prove that it's safe enough. That's NASA standard, that they're okay with saying, hey, crew is going to fly. So SpaceX has to do nine more of those multi-parachute tests before this new Mark III design has been approved and ready for people to launch. And later this month, November 23rd, SpaceX is going to be doing their in-flight abort test at max Q, which is the max dynamic pressure that it's it's the highest amount of force that the rocket experiences during launch. So the Falcon 9 reaches max Q, which is it's that time where the atmosphere and the vibrations that the rockets are dealing with and, and, and the force that the rocket is trying to push through the atmosphere to get into orbit, they actually pull back the throttle on the rocket so that the rocket and everything else on board has a chance while it's going through all of that insane force to not just rip itself apart and blow up. So they're actually going to fly a Falcon 9 and have the Dragon capsule abort during that phase. So that that's the point where it's going to be the toughest and the most difficult and the time that if anything was going to go wrong, it would happen there. If the abort test is successful doing it at that point, then we know that the Dragon, the Crew Dragon is is going to be safe enough in almost any situation. And for Boeing, the CST Starliner, CST100 Starliner had its successful test uh, of the abort test on the launch pad. So the it's pretty insane. The CST-100 Starliner from the launch pad went 650 miles per hour in five seconds. So you can just imagine how fast that actually is. And in that time, it reached perigee, uh, apogee, I'm sorry, which is the top of the orbit uh, of, you know, its trajectory as it launches from the pad and then comes back down the top of that arc is the apogee. So it reached that in 19 seconds. And then parachutes released, which turned the spacecraft to the right position so that it can get into landing. And then the module on the bottom was released, which exposed basically the heat shield on the bottom uh, so that that's a whole, the whole process of, of getting everything safe and to getting the Starliner to land safely with, with humans on board. Then the heat shield was removed and the airbags deployed on the bottom because it's actually landing on land. So it was a successful test and it's it's a great, great 
time right now for commercial space. Both options. You know, the thing that we've been we've been really looking for today in space, in the opinion of this podcast, we want as many options to go into space as possible. We have been we have had too much time where we haven't had any options to fly American astronauts from American soil on American rockets and spacecraft. And to have multiple options is a good thing. You know, we can we can pick sides or we we can we can get tribal, real tribal on who should be better. But having multiple options, two different spacecraft that do two different things and different capabilities, this is a good thing. And having them all human rated so that we could fly crew is a good thing. It's not like they'll go to go to waste. So having all of these things are great. That's kind of our take on this. Now, if we look online, if we space Twitter, um, there's a lot of bickering going on about the the parachute tests. You know, there's uh, the SpaceX hardcores that are, I would say, a little, what's the word I'm looking for? Angsty against Boeing and NASA because that whole new space versus old space thing. And the fact that Boeing's test only had two of the three parachutes release during this test. They would argue that that's a problem, even though in Boeing's test, the two out of three is more than safe enough for it to land. And then you've got the other side where you've got the Boeing hardcore, the NASA hardcore people who up until SpaceX tested this new Mark III design and until they get those 10 tests are not going to be satisfied with SpaceX's abilities until they pass all the regulation and the tests to make sure that it's secure. So again, we're in this we're in this balance of, you know, new space versus old space, but in reality, it it doesn't matter. In fact, it doesn't matter who wins and we want it to be both of them. We want both SpaceX and Boeing to have successful tests and to have these spacecraft work. That's something that's great. That is good for everybody. So, like we said, November 23rd, there's going to be in-flight max Q test for SpaceX. In December sometime, there's still, you know, this test was dependent on this timeline, so this last test that Boeing did means that they can now move forward to an uncrewed robotic test of the Starliner, which will launch on an Atlas V and go to the, which just started getting put vertical, so it's LVOS is what it's called, and uh, there's a video, we will... We'll, a link here so you can see it here, but the Atlas V that that Starliner will be flying on is now being prepared by the United Launch Alliance, and that's coming up in December sometime. There's no date at this moment, but they will be doing that robotic test to fly to the ISS, dock to the ISS, and basically proof everything out for the spacecraft before they ever put crew on it. So again, like I said, both successful. This is great. This is amazing for the American space industry right now. And then in interstellar news, we have Voyager 2, which is one of the two Voyager spacecraft that was sent on the solar system tour. You know, they, they were sent in two different directions. Voyager 1 was sent almost directly to go to interstellar space to get there first. It arrived there in 2012, and it gave us an insight on what it looks like and what, what the what is space, what is the interstellar space like outside of the influence of our sun? You know, there's a thing called the heliosphere, which is the sphere of influence, the sphere of particles that are that is around our sun and our solar system. Now, 
the heliosphere is not the outside of our solar system or what we consider the solar system, but it's it's where the particles, the solar wind, you know, the, the sun gives off solar particles. Not that it's something that you can just see by the naked eye, but that's what helps make Earth warm. You know, these particles that come to us, that reach Earth, that warm up the atmosphere, that warm up the ground, all of those things, that's solar particle and solar wind that causes that. Uh, the light sail, light sail two that was just used, that uses a sail to ride the solar wind, that, that we're talking about the same thing. And so the heliosphere is that, the edge of the heliosphere is where the Voyager 1 went at 2012, and now in 2018, uh, November 5th, 2018, Voyager 2 reached the edge of interstellar space and the edge of that heliosphere. So right where the interstellar space, where where all the particles that are out there are from other stars and 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 things that are not in the influence of our sun. So there's a few things. There was a, a few papers that came out. We haven't had the chance to go through everything, but there was a good article that gave a brief description of, of what those articles talk about. We'll, we'll dive more into that in a future episode. But to give you just a brief understanding of, of what they've found. So Voyager 1, when it exited the heliosphere, it exited at a period where the solar activity, you know, solar flares, how, how much activity the sun is actually giving off, was at a high, and Voyager 2 actually exited the heliosphere at a point where the solar activity was really low. So what they noticed was that there is a difference at these two points. The other thing is that Voyager 1, uh, if you think about the heliosphere, you know, something like it's like here, I'm using my hands here. I've got a, a, basically a north side and a south side. Voyager 1 exited on the north side, the northern hemisphere of the heliosphere, and Voyager 2 exited at the southern hemisphere. And so what they noticed was that with the different solar activity, they did notice a difference in in that. So basically there's this breathing that's happening with the solar, with the heliosphere, that that the sun is is in a way breathing in, in, in the fact of its activity, you know, and how that that sphere acts is they're, they're saying that there's a, there is a breathing action that is happening, which is mind-blowing in itself. One thing that they didn't think was going to happen was that, you know, at the edge of the ball of influence of the sun and interstellar space, deep space, they expected that the magnetic field would change, you know, at that boundary line, but it, it didn't. Uh, and that's something that they don't understand quite yet. Like, why didn't it change? You know, we'll get into those papers and hopefully get a better answer, at least more detail on what that means. But yeah, we'll, we'll go into that in a, few, in a future episode. You know, and the other thing, you know, when we, we think about a sphere, we think of like a perfect sphere, right? Where it's, it's perfectly shaped it, and it's, it would be uniform, you know, that the particles that are being released are going to be the same at the northern hemisphere as they are at the southern hemisphere. But what they noticed from Voyager 1 was that, you know, right before they got to the edge of the heliosphere, they noticed with Voyager 1 that there were less particles, basically. By the time they got to the edge, there was, there was no particles that this, instrument that's on board was was noticing. With Voyager 2, they actually noticed that right up until the point where they reached the edge of that sphere, they were picking up particles that were from the sun. So that, that brings into question, you know, it, it it's not really as uniform as we might think. And then, but there's a, there's a lot of different factors that are involved. Obviously, the different activity levels, you know, who knows if maybe you know, they're, they're two different times. You know, both spacecraft were launched in 1977. They reached the edge of in our heliosphere at different times, mainly because Voyager 2 had the solar system tour. It went through and, and gave us views of all the planets as it made its way out. So that's where that five-year, uh, or 
actually, six to seven year difference occurred. So now the big question is, you know, what's what's next for Voyager, both both Voyager probes, and, you know, it's powered by RTG, so radioactive thermoelectric generators. So plutonium-238, they, it's, it's, literally nuclear energy that's that's running these spacecraft so uh as nuclear energy takes longer it decays which means there's less fuel over time and you know 1977 is when they launched we're getting to the point where you know the spacecraft has used a certain amount of energy and those plutonium 238 isotopes are now starting to decay and there's less and less power they've actually been shutting off different instruments on board so that it can actually stay on and still be operational because there's just less and less power as as the years go by and by their calculations right now there's really only 5 years left of power you know if they're really good about making sure that they turn off anything that's not critical for the end of the mission so now that both probes are in interstellar space hopefully we'll be able to learn even more about what's out there in deep space because there's so much there's so it's so interesting how when you think about what we want space to be right for for humans to travel space and, and to go into deep space and to travel to all these distant planets and find life in other places but to even travel outside of our solar system we just don't know enough and space weather is a up thing man you really do not want to get hit with high high speed particles that would rip right through you wouldn't even notice because they would be moving at such speeds that you know they could rip right through the hull of your spacecraft go right through your brain right through your head and you would have no idea then there's space weather is a, is a messed up thing we'll have to touch on that in another episode but i mean look it up space space weather gets really really messy and we really don't have the technology to defend against it. We have, you know, different things we do nowadays, like we do in the ISS. We have basically water lining the outside of spacecraft because it's one of the best things we can do to defend against the radiation that can happen, especially from things like coronal mass ejections from the sun, where giant plasma will come out and give off tons of radiation, which could kill any human being and or at least make it a not pleasant death. But the problem with a water shield jacket for a spacecraft is if you do get hit with, say, uh, you know, some kind of radiation, you know, it's it, the, I remember the last time I looked this up, basically the, the, the water would be evenly, you know, you'd have a thin layer around the whole spacecraft, but if, if the radiation came from one side, the water actually gets pushed away and then you're exposed. So if, if it's a, a lot of radiation or there's a second round of radiation that happens, you basically lose all your protection so you know it's it's something that we need to learn more about especially if we're going to go into interstellar space and and travel outside of our solar system we need to learn a lot more and so voyager one and voyager two in the last five years or so hopefully we learn more about that so that we can then prepare for what's next in our in our journey through the stars and and for making human life interplanetary and interstellar so that's what we have for this week. Thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, you know, make sure to, first of all, tell your friends about us. If you have anyone that's interested in space, send them our way. Subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever you can find podcasts. And we've got a YouTube channel. Subscribe there. And if there's anything that you want us to cover here on Today in Space, please let us know. And that does it for this week. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next time for Today in Space.